What's up, Stay Healthy New Jersey? This is not your host, Dr. Justin Rabinowitz. This is Hannah. I am the editor and producer behind the scenes of our very own Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast here at Strive to Move. I also handle all things marketing for Strive to Move, such as our social media pages, which if you don't follow, go do so right now. We are at Strive number two, move on both Facebook and Instagram. We post tons of engaging and I think entertaining content daily. So the episode this week features Trish O'Brien. She's a pediatric occupational therapist and the owner and director of Springboard Therapy in Morristown. Trish shares all the ins and outs of life as an OT and specifically being an occupational therapist for children. This episode was super interesting. I learned so much, uh, but it's a must listen for new parents, expecting mothers, and truly anybody who has children in their lives. So hope you enjoyed the different intro. If you haven't yet subscribed or left us a review on iTunes yet, please go do so. We greatly appreciate all of our listeners. Uh, I hope you enjoy. Cue the intro music. This is the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast, aimed at helping you live an active and healthy life in and around Somerset and Union County, New Jersey. This podcast is brought to you by Strive to Move, located in Warren and Berkeley Heights. Strive to Move helps active adults in New Jersey get back to doing what they love pain-free. Trish, very nice to have you on. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Justin. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So um, we're recording this still going through the quarantine um, and, and I know a lot about what you do. But why don't you tell the audience who you are and, and what you do and what your business is? Sure. Thank you. Uh, so my name is Trish O'Brien and I am a pediatric occupational therapist. And most people say, well, what in the world is a pediatric occupational therapist? Um, I have a practice in Morristown called Springboard Therapy, where we have about six occupational therapists. And what we do there primarily is work with children. Um, any We have uh, like our more involved kids, like our autism kids, kids with genetic disorders, all the way up through, um, you know, kids who are having some handwriting issues, some coordination issues. And then, of course, our little babies and things that are showing some delays and the parents are concerned. Um, what occupational therapy does is anything that has to do with your occupation. And for children, that means the role that they play as being a child, playing, developing, um, going to school, participating in their community. All of those things are part of their occupation. So occupational therapy is designed to help those children achieve their basically best selves or help them participate in their occupation wherever that occupation is impaired. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's great stuff. Obviously we met through my wife who was an intern of yours, who was also an OT. And, um, you know, so I have a basic understanding of some of the things and, you know, as you're speaking, a lot of it to me seems obvious. If, if you know your child has, has, you know, special needs or maybe is on the spectrum, that's very obvious. What I find interesting and I'd like to start with is potentially some of the things that you see that might not be so obvious that really takes a parent to understand. And, and in this situation, hopefully we can maybe educate a parent on what they might see, whether it's developmentally or socially very early on where they might want to contact you, because I think the biggest problem is most parents just don't know. So what would you, and how would you kind of talk? So through? this is, this is where we get into sort of the, um, the community relationship of therapists and pediatricians, um, 
and uh, sort of outlets that give parents information in general. Where are they going for their information? Uh, my sister has a, a seven-month-old, and we just went through this journey together. Um, when I and to your point, kind of the kids that I've met and how how they find out. Um, one of the first ways that parents um, understand there's a problem actually comes from them. Like they have this little niggle in their mind that they say something doesn't seem right and usually the first person they go to is their pediatrician and fair enough there's such a wide variety of development um you know unless there's something really concerning most pediatricians will refer the children to um you know go online or go to these little classes or try try this that or the other or why don't you just um you know do x y and z uh, from this website and then come back in a month or two if you're still concerned my best experiences with this are when a parent comes in maybe the second time or the third time and then the pediatrician does a really good job of listening and says, you know, I hear that you're concerned. Let me refer you to a specialist and then you can go through that route and decide if, if, if this is where you, if, if your child actually is having a challenge or if there's something they can do to help you. Um, there are other pediatricians who it's not that they're not listening per se, but they're going more along with, don't worry, this all happens, just let it all work out. If something's really wrong, we'll figure it out. Um, so for, for the therapist, we really appreciate when the um, pediatricians in our area hear the parents and say, you know, I hear that you have a concern and we have all these practitioners that can help you, whether it's a physical therapist, speech therapist, or occupational therapist. So that's usually where the parents first grow. Um, in terms of understanding if your child has a, a, an issue and whether or not you need to seek help, there's no point at which you, you can't seek help, right? So it's kind of like if you have a concern, find out, right? Worst case scenario, something's wrong. Best case scenario, we say, you know what, this is just within the realm of typical or here's a couple of things you can go home and try. And if they don't work, come back. And if they do work, fantastic, you're done. Um, as I had said with my sister, I just went through this when I met her baby at two, I can't remember if he was two or two and a half months at Thanksgiving. Um, he couldn't hold his head up at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had kind of a funny little ridge on his head and a flat spot. And he was very uh, alert. Like he would, he would, he would look at you beautifully with his eyes. He would engage, but he couldn't follow you with his eyes. He just wasn't moving. So I freaked out a little bit. So she went back to her pediatrician who said, you know, I think everything's okay, but I hear you. So let's send you perfect pediatrician story. Let's send you to the, to the therapist and you know, you can get help that way. So she's had quite a journey with a lot of different types of um, interventionists and her child has been doing really, really well and uh, does have low muscle tone, but does not have any other genetic disorder. Okay. She didn't get tested for genetic disorders because the baby's done better and better and better and the head stuff worked itself out. Uh, without a helmet, so it was all good. Yeah, it's too much information. No, I think it's it's interesting, and, and I I showed you before. I'm in my office, and I have these posters on my wall of developmental milestones, yeah. um, which I kind of what I'll do with my patients here. I'll have the mom who's 35 years old, and I'll put her into a crawling position or a bird dog or a half kneel, and I put her in all these positions. And then when I'm done, I say, "You see these funny looking posters? You remember when your baby did that?" And they start laughing. I'm like, I know it sounds funny, but this is a lot of the stuff that we don't do well as adults. And so, you know, I feel like I see it at the adult level where you might sure. see it at the child level, but specifically 
you know, we hear all the time, almost offhanded of, of parents who are like, oh yeah, yeah, my son never crawled. I'm like, so let's take that one. So again, for a parent out there who is either having a baby or maybe has a, a child who's early on three, four months and they're, you know, nine, 10 months, they're supposed to crawl where most parents would be like, oh, he just went right to walking. That's great. Talk yeah. to me about why that's good, bad, or might, might be a problem, might not be. <laughs> so here is the thing. Um, it's kind of, it, you know, you've heard the term, like there's something, um, just because you don't crawl doesn't mean something's wrong, but when you, so every child that comes into our clinic, if they have not crawled, that raises a little red flag, but just because somebody doesn't crawl doesn't automatically mean we dump them into that category of, oh gosh, something went wrong. Um, generally speaking, we want children to go through the different developmental stages because each one plays a role in a foundation skill. And those foundation skills build on each other over time to help the child uh, develop these higher level skills. So is it the end of the world if the child doesn't crawl? No, but what we often see is when children don't crawl, they're not spending so much time with their hands on the floor and you have 10 arches in each hand. And it takes a lot of weight bearing for those arches to develop. So you say, well, if you don't spend a lot of time weight bearing, you don't have the opportunity to de fully develop those arches or fully develop all of the shoulder stability that you need when you're an infant. Um, you know, oftentimes we see the kids that don't crawl aren't crawling because they're, they're either crawling is too hard, right? So some kids are these sort of commando crawlers. And when they're doing that commando crawling, Essentially what's happening, right, is some of it's reflex integration, it's not integrating, and as the children are trying to move, they can't coordinate their top and their bottom and their left and their right, and you know, we see that later. Does it become a problem for some kids? It becomes, uh, you know, therapy issues, but for other kids, it's just their quirk, right? They're not real good at, at bilateral skills. They're not real good at, you know, activating the top and bottom at the same time. Not so, every kid who has coordination issues, though, didn't crawl. The, you know, not that I want to challenge you on that, but I want to talk about, even if it's not a, I guess, a problem, I can think of a, a kid I'm working with now. He's a freshman in college. He plays baseball. He's a big dude, six foot three, right? Yep. And he has a shoulder issue from pitching, right? But he's fine. Developmentally good in college. Everything is great. You know, he's a great yep. kid. Yep. The first time I met him, he shook my hand and it was like very like, mm. I was like, that's like weird, a little limp basically. Right. <laughs> and then I put him in our crawling position on quadruped and, and the way that he would use, you talk about arches in the hand, yeah. to me, it just looked like his hands were just like I floppy. floppy, right? And mm -hmm. so even though he's fine, quote unquote, developmentally, and he's a college athlete, I yeah. just think to myself, what did he look like at eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 months, 15 months that, and are we seeing the effects of that later in the sense of now he's got a labrum issue because of a lack of stability that he's had with low muscle tone that he sort of overcame, but not really, you know? Well, so would, then you wonder, right. So you start to wonder like, A, were there reflexes that didn't totally integrate that have affected the, the actual way that he's doing something? Is he compensating in a certain way that injured his shoulder? Is it just an injury that happens with, um, with baseball players anyway? Or was there a way that he learned how to throw that he couldn't quite shift his weight? Who knows? There's so many different pieces. And, and because, you know, there isn't money to do research, we don't know. And so a lot of, a lot of what we do know is based on, you know, doing a retrospective 
of the of the child and typically if they're in therapy we're doing a retrospective on a child who's having challenges and there is definitely a correlation of the children who are in therapy who had trouble with early developmental skills whether it's crawling or you know um you rolling some kids only roll one way um or parents will say they never really pushed up really well um so all of those things you know they they you as i as i've said to my sister it's not a problem in and of itself it's just something that you notice and you want to see if you if you have your baby so her baby's seven months so if i have if i if he's weight bearing to the side do you start to notice a change about how he's moving his head about his comfort with moving in space so when you when you offer these movements like to your patients or to my patients and we see a change it brings an aha movement like gosh why did we need to suggest that to them why couldn't they just figure it out right how do you suggest a parent goes about understanding all this there's no there's no guide there's no guide to being a parent you and i are speaking about this like and as i'm we're, we're talking about it because we see it and you know from your perspective as an expert and i know it from my perspective not like you do um oh but yes yeah, sure understanding how bodies work but like even to your point and my first thought was like i saw my my was a nephew or niece nephew your nephew mm-hmm and you were looking at, at him at, at three months and he wasn't lifting his head and you're like, oh, this is a problem. But if I was a parent and I didn't know any better, I would just say he's a baby. Well, my sister is a nurse and she didn't think it was an issue. It was two and a half months. And so I think what I, where I always send people. So when, if you are pregnant um, or you've just had a baby, the best website is pathways.org. It is, okay. it is a it is a uh, medical specialist's path, uh, uh, website. So it's therapists, doctors, you name it, psychology, whatever. Anyone who works with children, they're all involved, and they have these beautiful what to look for at two months, what typical looks like, what atypical looks like, what to look at three months, four months, and it's designed for you to bring with you to the pediatrician's office. So if if you see something you're concerned about, you bring the paper with you and say, look. I'm looking at a website that's designed by pediatricians, therapists, whatever. So that's what I often recommend for for new moms in terms of if they're if they're concerned. That's the physical development. The because everybody's always worried about autism, and I just had a call from a, a mom who's got a 15 month old. The the next piece that you look at is the engagement piece, right? So how involved is your child with you? And if they're not, it doesn't automatically assume they have autism, but it can indicate that they're having trouble with regulation. It's too much. I can't really pay attention to this, right? So, you know, I, and I know pediatricians are very honed into this. Um, and, but generally if a parent feels uncomfortable with their child, if they feel like they're, they're not able to comfort their child, if they feel like their child is not, following um, what's going on in the room. Um, Those are all very good reasons for concern. And we know now that the earlier the intervention, the more, the better outcome we have, even if your child is on the spectrum. And this is not including the children who have the regressive autism, which is devastating. All autism is, is challenging, but the regressive is very hard. And, but, you know, recognizing if they're engaged, recognizing if they're, um, if there's any kind of back and forth communication happening between the baby and the and the mom, and there are so many uh, wonderful YouTube videos, you can look up typical infinite interactions with with moms and babies. I mean, they're, they're they're all over. And so, if a mom 
feels, I always say like the moms and the dads, if they have, I don't know what the word is, a niggle, an intuition, a thought, a concern, uh, their stomach hurts. It's always better to talk to a professional, not necessarily Dr. Google, but that's why I like pathways.org, talking to your pediatrician. If your pediatrician you feel is not listening to you, then the next step is to either call early intervention, call a local, like we find what's great is um, occupational therapists are very, it's, it's like a very friendly way to get into therapy, right? It yeah. doesn't feel scary. We're not super clinical. We tend to be very warm and happy. And so when you call to have a conversation, most, most parents feel relieved after the conversation because they're like, oh, okay, this put it in perspective for me. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's so many of us around and, and, you know, I've never really heard anyone say anything negative about a pediatric OT. <laughs> so yeah. No, it's a very friendly place. Yeah. I, I can certainly see that. Um, we, we spoke about how some of the people that I might see at 30, 40 years old who are now moms and they're coming to me. Like I can think of one specific patient I had. She's 39. I think she's got two kids and she does CrossFit now. And she came to me cause she heard her back squatting doing CrossFit. Yep. And as I started doing my, my assessment with her, what I realized very quickly was that she had no concept of engaging her core. She didn't understand stability in her glutes and all these things eventually caused her back to her. And so I start talking to her through this, all of this, as I'm speaking to her. And she said to me, she's like, you know, my daughter who's in, in uh, second or third grade, she has low tone and she goes to therapy for it. And she looked at me and she goes, do you think I have low tone? And I was like, listen, that's not my thing, but as like all the things that I'm working on would probably classify you, you're hypermobile, you don't know how to engage certain muscles. And she's like, yeah, I'm 39 when I was a kid in their late 80s, like they didn't even have this. So right. it's like you look at it and, and she probably was the same as her daughter. It just in her world that when she was just flexible and unathletic as a kid and now she has back pain because of it. That's right. So yeah, that, you know, it's interesting how you see it come at different times. Well, but I think you have a good point in that, you know, it's wonderful that you're able to have this relationship with people where they can see things in themselves, see it in their children and recognize that maybe they had that as they were kids. And there was, again, that missed opportunity of learning to become aware of your body, how your body works when you're younger, not necessarily as an athlete, but just as a regular person. One of the I have one girl I'm working with right now, and, and the concern is she's been to the doctor or the emergency room or the orthopedist 10 times in the last year um, because of falling out of her chair at school, because of bumping and falling at home, um, you know, which 10 times is a lot of times to go to an orthopedist. So the question becomes, is she overreactive to pain? You know, what's her muscle tone look like? What's her coordination look like? And, and she has a lot of those challenges. Um, timing and rhythm isn't there. And <clears throat> If we never, ever address it, we have somebody who certainly will learn how to cope but feel uncomfortable in their own body. And that, that carries through adulthood, right? And then, and then they might end up seeing you with an injury or several injuries versus if we teach them about how to listen to their body and how to know how their body works and learn about rhythm and timing, they might actually not have some of those challenges down the road, you know, even if they are low tone, because low tone is just the deck of cards you were dealt, right, dealt in terms of, you know, how your body is put together. But certainly there are lots of athletes out there, your baseball player uh, friend, for example, um, or client who are fantastic athletes, but, you know, 
what are they, how are they compensating if, if they're lower tone? Like what is their movement pattern? What, what reflexes are not necessarily integrating for them? We don't, we don't know until it's, something has happened. Right. Yeah. And it's one of those things where uh, I see people, you know, 18, 19, 20, and I think like, I wish I could have seen them at 13, 14. And then I'm sure you probably see people at 13, 14, 15. I'm, I wish I could have seen them at four or five. I wish um, I could have seen them at two and three or four when I see them at five and six and seven. Yeah, it's just, just the earlier the better, right? And I think the the point of today, I hope, is you know, in our community to get people to listen to this to maybe take the step before because you know, we've had experiences with with pediatricians and I have family or pediatricians, but the frustrating part we often hear is that just wait and see, wait and see. And it's like not always. Maybe there is something else, right? And I think that's where it becomes frustrating for for people like you and people like me, where we would just like for instead of wait and see, just say, okay, I hear you. Here are the experts in the field in our community, right? And um, you know, or or here's this website called pathways.org. Take a look, see if you find something that's concerning. Um, I think it's never too late to do therapy. I mean, we have kids that are in their teens and in their we get a young adults or whatnot. It's not like you can't, and there's different, there's different um, pluses and minus pros and cons, depending when you see people, right? So if I see kids when they're really young, what we're thinking about is that we're developing foundation skills so that we don't have to worry about working on sort of the higher level precision skills later. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes they do have to come back, depending if they have some discrimination challenges or things where they really need to, or, or praxis where they really need to learn the task and, and they're having a hard time figuring it out. Um, but generally speaking, when we get them when they're younger, particularly for the kids that are lower tone and have, have challenges figuring out how to move their body and activate their core, the activating their core, we find that happens in four to eight sessions, four to eight sessions. Mm -hmm. They learn how to activate their core, which could be something they keep for life. Mm -hmm. Right. And all it is, is just help the equipment that we have at the clinic or the ways that we move. They're like, the kids just figure it out. Right. We don't have to tell them, Hey, lift your knees up when you're on the trapeze. We're just like, Oh, whoa, how are you going to climb up that thing? And they figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's that same to me. Like when you say, Oh, I can either, I can, I can give you a fish or I can teach you how to fish. So it's the same thing with therapy. I can, I can tell you what to do. Your mom and dad can tell you what to do, but if you figure it out for yourself, you'll be able to generalize it yourself. Right. Right. Talk to me about the different toys slash devices that we see. It's a, oh, yes. Del and I are on, on Facebook with my friends, her friends, and we see, you know, our, our friends that have children, they're putting them in like the jumpy devices and the walker thingies. And we're always looking at each other. We're like, do we tell it's good, them? Like, should we tell them just to not do it? Da, da, da. So what is your thought on, I don't even know what it's called, where the, the child sits in it. It's almost like a harness and they bounce up and down or the walkers. Um, what is your feeling on that? Or what advice would you have for parents with those type of things? So generally, almost everything is okay for short periods of time. So the danger or the problems occur when kids are plopped into something for too long, right? So, um, or if there's something going on with your child that you didn't know about. So anything, anything that opens their legs like that yeah. um, is fine if they're typical. If they're not typical, then you worry about hurting their hips and that kind of thing. Um, where we have found problems with kids with any of the 
uh, toys is when they're left in them too long. So my things that make me the most uncomfortable that I think uh, within the OT community we find dangerous would be the weighted uh, sleepers. Okay. So those are the things um, to help the babies, you know, because everyone wants to sleep when they have a baby, even though like it's a rite of passage, you just don't sleep. Sure. I have three kids. I don't think I slept for like nine years. So when you put those weighted things on the kids, the idea is like, oh, it's a weighted blanket, blah, blah, blah. But when you're putting it on a, on a newborn infant, right, who's supposed to learn how to move and where mm-hmm. them startling themselves awake is, is really part of a, a survival thing, right? And we, we move, you know, and, and you can talk to any, anyone, plastic surgeons, people who make helmets. When we started the Back to Sleep campaign, which I want to say was in 1994, I think, um, it did decrease SIDS, which is awesome. Thank God, right? Babies were dying. But at the same time, we, we started this whole problem of flatheads, right? We didn't have the flathead syndrome before that. You know, as, a, as an infant, I was born in 1970-something. I won't tell you when. Um and my mom used to always sleep me on my belly, right? So you'd sleep on your belly. And that's the issue with my sister that I was worried about. Her little infant couldn't lift his head. So technically, if he was slept on his belly, if he went face down, he'd never be able to move his head. Right. Most infants can turn their head by three months, right? To the side or whatever. Um, so the, those weighted things are very concerning to me because then the babies are really not going to move. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and if, if you have a baby with low tone, you're going to be affecting then their reflexes. The second thing that seems to be very dangerous are those sleeper cots, mm-hmm. you know, where the babies go in there and they, they, they stay real still that the thing might rock, but the baby stays still. There's been, there's some danger because if they roll, then they, then they get squished into the side and can't mm-hmm. breathe. So those are kind of scary. In terms of development, when you're looking at like the things you sit the kids in the activity centers, yeah. um, that in and of itself is not a problem. What what you want to think about is if you're, a lot of people are putting babies in these things to kind of like, gosh, I want to take a shower. Let me put the baby in something. Okay, well, that's 15 minutes, no biggie. It's if you do that and then say, oh, now I need to blow dry my hair and I wanted to make dinner. Now the kid's in there for an hour. That's not okay. Right. Um, same thing, the, the walkers, the issue with the walkers is really the danger of the walker tipping over um, and, and how how they are learning to use their feet and their talk about not using core all of these things take away core right because the, the baby sits in it and it shrinks down you know i can't even see me but your body's like this and your head's like this yeah. so it's the wrong posture healthy babies when you put them in there they will be up and they have interesting things to look at they're a great place to park your kid for 15 20 minutes it's that length of time that you don't want to use using the items on their own eh, you know it's fine but just you're not you really shouldn't use them too often or too long gotcha okay so that's that's good to know because you know there are a lot of devices out there and you kind of get like a lot of things in life one of two camps people are like do it all the time or people that refuse to use them at all but if i'm hearing it correctly it's like not terrible if we just use them appropriately for small right. periods of time kind of probably yeah. i'm assuming like ipads if you use them very sparingly with your child probably not bad but if you over the age of two okay tell me about that i'm glad we yeah. talked so uh, the problem is okay so l- let's just go back to the device thing in general, yeah. almost everything is is fine in, in small increments of time. It is not needed, mm-hmm. right? None of that stuff is needed. Okay. It's wanted. Do you need to junk your house up with 10,000 big pieces of plastic? Absolutely not. Um, you can floors, uh, cardboard boxes taped together, 
Um, there's so many things you can do with kids, but it's totally understandable in today's day in life. You need to park your kids to get ready for work. You want something safe. You, you put them in one of those uh, exercises. Now they have one where the thing moves a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's all good. Just not a long period of time iPads is a different thing, right? So with, with, when you put a kid in a toy where they're playing with things, they're interacting with a three-dimensional world. When you give a child an iPad underneath the age of two, right, they're staying still and the thing is staying still, but it's got all this stuff happening on the screen and it's happening really fast. So essentially what, what you're thinking about is you're training them for having a short attention span. And we're not really sure visually what's going on. Do I think it's dangerous if you have little kids that are watching a show on TV? No. But what ends up happening is parents park their kids at a restaurant and put them on an iPad. Then they, on the way there, they were in the car watching a movie. And then on the way home, they're in the car watching a movie. So now you've got, what, two hours of screen time. That's inappropriate. If you are making dinner and you put on a TV show, eh, right? It's, again, it's, it's about time. What the science says is not under under the age of two. They recommend no screen time um, over the age of two. It, it it varies by age. Right. So at the age of two, I think they say like a half an hour. Mm -hmm. So when you think about how much people are using these things, it's not a half an hour. Gotcha. OK, so right. using too much and below the age of two, probably not. I mean, listen, I don't know a single parent on the planet who hasn't put, parked their kid in front of a TV because they're baby Einstein, whatever. Sure. Um, I don't think that it's it's ruined people. And I, I don't think there's going to be any research that's going to show that. But they, they are finding that or they feel more comfortable. A lot of things change it, too. Right. A lot of things are fully formed. For example, you don't want headphones on a kid before the age of two because their ears aren't fully formed. Mm -hmm. You don't want to injure their ears. So. There's a lot of things that happen at different developmental stages and, and really common sense should prevail. Does it make sense to park a kid in front of a TV for two hours a day? No, not at all. Are kids really hard and require a lot of your time and energy? Yeah, they do. Okay. Yeah, I get it. So now let's transition to your 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 center your uh your practice i've seen videos of it i haven't been there personally but i mean to me if someone walked in they'd be like what is this a jungle gym yeah right yeah so tell yeah. me about the the genesis of how you got to where you are what what are all the devices all the things and, and what goes on there Sure. So um, my practice operates on um, within occupational therapy, pediatric occupational therapy, there's different things. We call them frames of reference. And a frame of reference is basically a theory that we operate off of. Um, and whether or not we're in fidelity with them means, you know, that we're following this particular frame of reference to the T, right? So we use three to four different frames of reference at our practice. Primarily it's sensory integration. Um, there's two different types of sensory integration frames of reference that we're in mostly in fidelity with. One is uh, called the star center frame of reference. The other one is the Genaires uh, model. It's uh, now I think it's called classy. So um, those are the two frames of reference. And then the third one is developmental. And the last one is visual perceptual. And so the clinic itself looking like a jungle gym, that's part of being in fidelity with sensory integration. So in order to provide sensory integration treatment in fidelity with these two frames of reference, you need to be able to have an environment that can provide what's called the just right challenge. And the just right challenge is um, the ability to manipulate your environment so that uh, a child can um, be, be working on a goal or a skill or learning or 
like just basically whatever the goal is or whatever the skill you're working on, we need to have many different ways within a playful environment to be able to achieve it, right? So working with kids, so we can't be like in an office where it's boring. So the purpose of the gym is to provide intrinsic motivation. So I don't have to bend over backwards and upside down to get them to do things. They walk in and they're like, whoa, like they just want to do it. It's kind of like a ninja training uh, playground, I guess. Um, so for our little, little ones, right. Um, it's, we actually want to be either in a smaller room or have less stuff so they don't feel overwhelmed and they're just, but again, you have little toys they want to play with, but the gym is really designed for kids that are two and a half, three through adulthood to provide intrinsic motivation and the just right challenge so that we can help them achieve basically whatever goal it is that we're working on achieving in an environment that's motivating. I got you. So talk to me about your journey. So you, um, I will say you were my wife's mentor and one of her mentors, you were her mentor. So you're like, you're like the mentor of mentors out here. I'm old. <laughs> so a lot of people are old, but don't have, don't do as well as you have done to get where you are. So tell me about your journey about, you know, where it started and like how you eventually built this thing that you have now. So my journey started, I went to Stonehill College for my first year of college and I was taking a gerontology class. I knew I wanted, I liked people. I liked people. I liked working with people. There's a lot of nurses and and, uh, doctors and dentists and stuff in our family. So I was there. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, And my advisor, my first year was an occupational therapist by profession. And, but now he was a gerontology professor and he had a sheep farm essentially in Massachusetts. And we sat down, it was like the second or third time we met. And he goes, you know what, Trisha? He said, I think you would make a great occupational therapist. I'm like, what the heck is an occupational therapist? I don't want to help people find jobs. I don't know what that means. And he's like, no, 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 no. So he explained it to me. So I went to Boston University. Then I applied and went to Boston University to um, become an occupational therapist, which was a fabulous, fabulous program. Loved it. And um, when I left there, I knew I wanted to work with children. I just loved, I had babysat my whole life and I just loved the excitement of kids. So I, I actually lived in Atlanta for five years and started my career down there. When I moved back up here and I did work with adults for about two years, I was, I just wanted to make sure I ruled that out as something I didn't, did or did not want to do. I, I, when I started putting them on therapy balls, I was like 80 year olds on therapy balls and not a good idea. Yeah. Um, so I went back to pediatrics and when I moved back to New Jersey, um, you know, I tried a little of everything, early intervention, school, clinic-based, hospital, um, but sensory integration was my passion. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to do um, some mentoring with a place called Occupational Therapy Associates of Watertown. I think it's now called the Jane Kumar Center. Um, She has passed away of breast cancer, but she was one of the people that worked with Jean Ayers, who is the founder of Sensory Integration out in California. Um, And I've just recently had an opportunity to do some mentoring with another woman, Rosemary White, to learn some DIR floor time, who also worked with, who also interned with Jean Ayers. So I feel very fortunate in having had these like amazing people to help um, with the interning. But anyway, back to Jane Kumar. Um, I knew I wanted to open up my own practice primarily because all of the practices I had been in in New Jersey, everybody was working in one room. And I never understood that. I'm like, everybody has so many issues and they're all working together. There might be 14 people in one room. So I went and started looking at other practices in different states and found they had separate rooms. And there was this woman I went out and visited in California. She did everything in one room with one person, but she used all 
sailing equipment. So I found all these interesting people and all these different interesting ways they were doing therapy, plus going to 10,000 continuing ed classes and finally decided on what I wanted my clinic to look like. And so back in 2005, I opened up Springboard Therapy. Um, it was right after my dad had, my dad had been encouraging me to open up my practice. Both my parents are um, entrepreneurs and business owners. Um, and he passed away at Christmas time of 2004. And so that was sort of the impetus to really get going, right? Yeah. Sort of as a in memoriam to my dad. Uh, so I opened up the practice about a year later and um, it's been an amazing journey since. And I feel very fortunate um, to have been able to create a facility where the focus is really on um, positivity and enthusiasm and including the family. And I'm not saying other practices do not, but there's definitely, um, there's, there's differences in opinion about how family should be involved and, you know, what makes, um, what makes kids motivated. In my opinion, it's maintaining a very positive, enthusiastic environment with a lot of family involvement and, uh, but no pressure, right? So if you can't do the home exercise program, that's okay. You know, no one, there's no pressure where you do what you can do when you can do it. Um, we're here for you if you need it, but if you can do it, fantastic. We're there to support you for that as well. So my journey has really just been trying out lots of different types of OT, working with lots of amazing different OTs, having some fabulous mentoring and attending 10,000 different continuing education courses, which sort of uh, drove me in the direction of what I am doing now, which is, um, uh, you know, kind of a combination of floor time, uh, which is um, a particular model to work with kids on the spectrum or any kid really, as well as sensory integration in a developmental kind of framework. So as a, as a chiropractor, I, you know, there's a chiropractor on every corner here, but like based on, we were talking before, what we do here is it's, it's generally pretty different than what the average experience is that people go like to see it. a chiropractor. There's many OTs around, but what do you guys do potentially where if there's a parent listening out there that said, I, I need to come to Springboard, why, why would they want to use you guys or come to you see you guys? So I think, um, I actually have a really good relationship with a lot of different practice owners in the area. I think a lot of us offer um, a, a similar vein of, of therapy in terms of expertise and following along with this uh, frame of reference. I'd say maybe what makes us stand apart a little bit is um, the way I designed the facility was to have separate rooms so we could all be on our own or we could work together. Um, I had hired a gentleman, a company from Boston to come down um, some clinics will have uh, ceiling points, like eight or 10 ceiling points where you can hang swings and things. And we have 140 because it's set up differently. So it just provides, when we talked about the Just Right Challenge, it just provides a lot of flexibility. So from a facility standpoint, I feel like we have a really exceptional, very adaptable facility um, that the therapists really like to use. It's easy to use. The kids don't get bored. Um, and then the second thing I think that makes us... Um, a good clinic is that we stay in fidelity with sensory integration and we are very positive. So when a parent calls and is feeling concerned, you know, we don't just say, hey, just come on in for your first evaluation. We spend a half an hour, 45 minutes on the phone with them talking about what their concerns are, helping them understand what is in the context of typical where we can help them or where we can't help them. Um, 
And I think that helps them feel like, okay, I've established a relationship with this place. They understand where I'm coming from. I don't feel like I'm, you know, cuckoo for cocoa, cuckoo for cocoa pops. You know how parents sometimes are like, am I off my rocker? Is this really something or, you know, and some, a lot of times parents are on different pages. So helping to bring them together or helping to acknowledge that what the mom or dad is feeling is, is real and, and happens. And they're not the only ones it's happening to. Um, I think that that is, um, very helpful and effective. And I think that we offer uh, a lot of warmth, you know, in terms of handholding and, you know, we have no rules that parents can't come in the back. There's no, you have to stay out here in the waiting room and your kid comes back with me. We, it's an open door policy, walk back and forth as often as you want. Um, if you feel your child is not able to focus, feel free to like step out of the room and just listen in. Like there's no, there's no point at which the family is not part of our process. So I think that is probably are the things that, 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 and we, we try to stay, you know, through having students in the practice and whatnot, we try to stay on point in terms of where things are from a frame of reference standpoint and what the best practice and evidence-based practice is given. I don't know about your field, but like there's, there's, there's research. We don't have tons of money to do research. So there's not this ginormous body of research to support this yeah. one particular frame of reference. Yeah. Well, I think that's another interesting point because a lot of the continuing ed that I've taken has been outside of my field, like whether it is PT or whether it is training conditioning to try yeah. and get other, other aspects. And, and I remember listening to, there's a guy, he's a, he's a strength and conditioning coach in Massachusetts and his name is Jeremy Fritch. And he focuses on training seven to 10 year olds. And it looks like, oh. it looks like gym class, basically, if you watch his videos and I've heard him be interviewed and he said that I've gotten a lot of my stuff from OTs. Right. And so again, getting crossing over is important, right? Yeah. Because it's very easy. And I think this is good for the public to understand. You know, I always tell people it's very, it can be very lonely in private practice. If you don't, yeah. if, you, if there's nobody telling you, as long as you do your CE credits, which, you know, you and I could get through and fudge them as easy as possible. Yeah. Um, there's nothing saying that what we're doing today and 25 years from now, there's put it, put, quite frankly, in my profession, there's a lot of guys that are doing the same stuff they were doing in the 80s yeah. and in yours. And so, it is important, I think, for the consumer or for a parent to understand that you guys are staying on top of things. You do have students coming in like we do, because it's one thing to have experience, but if you don't adapt and go forward, then you're, you know, who cares if you're doing the same thing you're doing in 1980? That's not, that's not what it's this like is. It's like living in a vacuum. Yep. And, and like I said, it can get very, we're in a, I'm in a building in the middle of the woods in Warren and like no one's telling people <laughs> to learn anything new here. If I don't, if I don't seek it out, it's not going to happen. That's you right. Know? So, so surrounding yourself, and that's what I've continually tried to do is surround myself with people that have pushed themselves to learn more and more and to expand their knowledge base. And, and to your point, OT, you know, there's a lot of other, um, like there's a place called Brain Balance. Have you ever heard of it? Mm -hmm. It's in Summit. So Brain Balance is basically the brainchild of this one gentleman, and he took a lot of things from OT. He um, he's using reflex integration. He's using interactive metronome, which is fine. That stuff's all good. And he's using a lot of the pieces that OT uses. Right. And so what makes brain balance brain balance is on a protocol. Right. And, and there have someone who's maybe a high school student or a college student or a new grad from something uh, spending time with your child following a protocol. Now, the, the protocol that they're following is is wonderful and uh, no issue with it whatsoever. It's just that they're charging $150 an hour, which is what a professional charges and your child is getting a scripted protocol program that 
like with anything, rinse, wash, and repeat, if you do something consistently three times a week and, and you're taking dyes out of your diet and following whatever, you will see a change. Anything you do three times a week, you are going to see a change. So from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense, um, but it's being carried out by a non-professional. Whereas in OT, we might be using those things, but we're using them with clinical reasoning, right? So we're not just saying, okay, these were the test results. I'm going to put you on this protocol. It's these were the test results. Let's try this. I'm going to use my clinical reasoning and my years of experience and all the 10,000 CEUs I've done. And mm -hmm. within this frame of reference that I'm following, right? So I'm following a guideline of, of mm -hmm. established rules that has research involved in it. Um, I'm not saying brain balance doesn't have research. They do. Um, but it, the difference is when you're, to your point, when you're working with a professional and they're an occupational therapist, people are always taking stuff out of our field, which is totally fine because, you know, we feel very proud of that. We, we are definitely outside the box thinkers and we have a lot, we use a lot of different pieces of things um, and they're all awesome all by themselves. But when we put them together, it's a unique experience for that individual person, again, developed on the idea of the just right challenge with the um, intrinsic motivation based on what your occupations are that we want to work on. So I sometimes find it frustrating, though, when things get taken out of context and put into these protocols, yeah. because, yes, anything you do three times a week is going to work. Did it achieve the goals you were meaning to achieve? I, I don't know. Sure. No, that makes sense. So just to, to wrap up, if you had a, la a message for maybe a soon-to-be parent or a new parent, what are maybe one or two things that they should be thinking about as their baby develops and kind of paying attention to? Um. Again, I think my, my thing would be make sure you have a reference that you're using so that if you feel uncomfortable, you have something to look at. I really like pathways.org. It's a month by month type of thing yeah. and it's developed by therapists and doctors together. So it was a collaborative um, website to begin with and always trust your gut. If your gut feels wrong and you go to your doctor and you feel like they're not listening, then the next step is you call a therapist, a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist. And the other thing to know is in New Jersey, now this is not true in all different states, but in New Jersey, in our part of New Jersey, in this, let's call it north of Woodbridge, right? Yeah. The north of the bridge area. Um, there aren't really very many um, practices that take in-network insurance. The hospitals do. Mm -hmm. um, but your, your true experts are usually found in private practice. They're using your out-of-network benefits and because New Jersey just has terrible reimbursement when it comes to in-network. Um, yeah. As much as I would love to be able to use in-network, yeah. you know, 55 to $65 per session is never going to cut it with a professional. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, that's a whole, you know, a brother ball. Whole another conversation. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I mean, no, it's, it's, you know, and I think that, like, I talk about with my staff all the time that, you know, in order for us to deliver the type of service that we want, it, it, we, you know, we have to do it in a certain way, and we could do it the other way, but it would look very different. And like, that's right. At night when we put our head on the pillow, we want to make sure that we're doing what we think is right for the patients. And even if it does cost them more, we say it's going, they're going to get more value than what it costs. And if it doesn't, then we should be out of business. You know? Right. Right. Agreed. And that's why out of network benefits are so amazing because right. for us, it's, it's what helps our families be able to use our services. So yeah. I agree. Well, it's, and you want to provide the best possible service you can. Right. Absolutely. So Trish, where can we find you or your practice or if someone's out there wants to reach out, where should they go? 
Um, so I am at Springboard Therapy in Morristown, New Jersey. Um, we are online at www.springboardtherapy.com. Um, and we are try <laughs> we're trying to become a, an online presence. So we have an Instagram account and we have a Facebook account. Um, we are, you know, not really updating it all the time, but it's, it's there and we do have some information on there, some therapy ideas and whatnot. So we're, we're trying to become an online presence. It's just one more, maybe that way we're a little old fashioned. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, uh, this will hopefully help spring yes. more into getting an online presence. All right? a great word, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. I know so many people are going to get a ton out of this and thank you for all you've done with my family my wife, my sister and all that. So I appreciate You're it. You're very welcome. It was, thank it's you. been a wonderful journey with your family. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast brought to you by Strive to Move. If your pain or injury is preventing you from living the healthy and active lifestyle you love and deserve and want to get back to doing what you love pain-free, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the best next steps to help resolve it. Find our ebooks online at strivetomove.com slash ourservices. There you'll find an ebook for topics on such things as back pain, knee pain, sports injuries, and CrossFit injuries. These ebooks will provide you with free expert advice, tips, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit strivetomove.com slash our services to download your ebook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no obligation phone consults with a doctor on staff to New Jersey residents. Just call us at 908-547-0729 or visit us at strivetomove.com and click the Talk to the Doctor First button on the homepage to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast.